I'm Jim Jeffrey, one of the pastors here at Chapel Point, and you are all of those who decided to do a staycation for, for our spring break. So congratulations. So um, this is a time of year when it begins to warm up a little bit. You see a lot of runners out on the sidewalks, out on the roads, and um, some of them are students that are tr- uh, preparing for track. Some of them are people who have been running all winter because they don't know any better. Um, some of them... <laughs> Some of them are people that are training for a 5K or a marathon. And uh, one of the things I enjoyed when uh, serving at a college was the, the students that were involved in cross-country. And in each of those situations, you're going to find people running together normally. Not just one runner, but they're going to run together because there's something about the encouragement that that actually brings as we do that together. And uh, I remember in our cross-country track, there was a, a hill that was very hard to run towards the end of the race, and you could hear the runners encouraging one another to keep with it, to keep going. And we need that in our lives, don't we? We need that in our lives. One, somebody who impacted my life a lot as a follower of Christ is a professor from Dallas Seminary called Howard Hendricks. He impacted a lot of people's lives. And though I never had him as a prof directly, I I'd sat under his teaching and benefited from his books. And something he said that every person he knew that was tracking spiritually always had somebody out in front whose example was challenging them, and somebody running alongside who was pacing with them, and somebody that that was running behind that they were encouraging. You kind of have that idea when you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, and um, verses um, 1 and 2 we're going to look at in just a moment. As we've been going through the book of Hebrews, we, we looked at Hebrews chapter 11, And the example of all of these people of faith who were just uh, running after Christ themselves. If people like Enoch and Noah, people like Abraham and Moses and many others. And you get to chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. uh, we, We read, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So it's kind of the picture that all those people he just mentioned in chapter 11 are like in a coliseum. And they're cheering us on as we're running the race. He said, let us lay aside every weight, anything that kind of holds us back as we run the race. And the sin, which may be the sin of unbelief, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Looking to Jesus, like he is the finish line, the founder, the one who produces faith in us, and the perfecter, the one who completes faith, Uh, who for the joy that was set before him endured, we're called to endure, he endured the cross. That's Good Friday. Despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's Easter and the ascension. One of the things I want you to notice in verse 1 is that all the plural pronouns that are in this charge to us, we are surrounded. Let us lay aside every weight. Let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. So the idea that the author of Hebrews is giving us, that this race that we're running is a race that we're running together toward Christ. We're running together as believers towards Christ. It is not a solo run. It's not something we're doing alone. We've so individualized the Christian life that we, we think that this, this is just a life I have to do all on my own. And friends, I want to I tell you it's not true. We're to live this faith race in community with one another. We need other believers. All of us need others in our life to be able to do that. We're going to see that in this passage. 
Because after this, he talks about persecution, verse 3. He talks about God's discipline in our life as a loving father. And we get down to um, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12. And I'm going to ask all of you to stand as we read the scriptures together. And you know the drill. If it's underlined, who reads it? You do, okay? So let's do this together. Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 12. Therefore, lift up your hands and strengthen your and make for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather may be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no springs up and causes trouble and by it many be defiled. Okay. Can't quite see it on the screen, so I'll look over here. And that no one is or like Esau who sold his for a single meal. For you know that afterwards when he desired to inherit the he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. That is the word of God. You may be seated. So as we run this race together towards Christ, we're running together towards Christ. And I want you to to think of that. We need one another to be able to do this. Because sometimes when the race gets hard, we need to encourage one another. Look at verse 12 of uh, Hebrews 12. Look at a very, very graphic picture here. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands. What a picture. Strengthen your weak knees. Drooping hands and weak knees. It's describing somebody that needs encouragement. You may want to put down in your notes there this passage that you'll, show on the, you'll see on the screen, Isaiah 35, verse 3 to 4, which is what this verse we're looking at is based on. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. There it is. And then the next verse says, say to those who have an anxious heart. Anybody here worried or anxious this morning? Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So he's saying there are times in our lives that we need to encourage one another because our hands are hanging down. They're weakened. They are listless. They are drooping. They're the hands that can't, it's picturing hands that can't hold anything. The historian Josephus used that same word to speak about people too tired to grip a sword. Can't grip a sword. That's a picture there. We're just, our hands are weary. They're they're, they're hanging down. And then he talks about the knees that are weak. They're disabled. Luke uses that in Luke 5 of a a disabled man. So knees that are weak, hands that droop down. Anybody that way this morning? You're just saying, man, I just got in here and I am just, my hands are weak. My My knees are buckling and I just need some encouragement. Friends, all of us experience that from time to time. And that's why we need to step into one another's lives, because when the race gets hard, we need to encourage one another. When something is happening in your life, it may be in your marriage, it may be in work, it may be unemployment, it may be financial pressure, maybe one of the kids, it may be caring for parents, it may be just the race of life is getting really hard for you. Hands are, can't grip anything, knees that are weak, and we need to be strengthened we need someone to be able to encourage us and to, and to step us up. Friends, listen. The time to find a friend to do that in your life is not in the crisis. Harder to do that. 
The time to do that is find friendships ahead of the crisis so when the crisis comes, you know who to call and say, hey, need you to pray for me, need you to walk with me, need you to encourage me. Friends, that's why at Chapel Point, we put such emphasis on being in a small group because that group of 12 to 14 people, we pray for one another. We care for one another. We walk together through life. That's why even being in a ministry team, the, the opportunity to kind of walk with other people and to have those relationships in place. That's why things like the women's conference coming up is a great opportunity for you to be able to come together and to, to make new relationships if you don't have them. The men's conference we have coming up in June, that's going to be a great opportunity. Men, we're, in, we're encouraging you to come with three other men because we're going to meet together in quads and we're going to learn together and share together. And then afterwards, we're going to continue to hang out together. So these are opportunities because you need those relationships to encourage you. When the race gets hard, we need to encourage one another. And as we run together towards Christ, when a runner falls, we need to restore one another. Look at verse 13. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. It's kind of interesting that in these two verses, he talks about hands, knees, and feet. He's using human anatomy to teach spiritual reality. He's doing that. And he said, listen, first of all, he says, make straight paths. One of the things that they would do on our college campus is, is when the spring came, they would get out there with, with um, saws, uh, chainsaws and other things to clear the trail. And that's kind of the picture here. Well, I grew up in upstate New York, the main road that used to be from Binghamton, New York to Albany, kind of goes northeast uh, up that, that way, was a Route 7. And Route 7 followed the river. It, it actually was an old Indian trail that f became Route 7, followed the river. And, and because it followed the river, it was very crooked. It went through a bunch of towns, and it was not fast going. And uh, all the way up to about Cooperstown, and then it followed a very tight valley, and it's just very tight corners. Well, the federal government, together with the state of New York, decided to put in an interstate highway that starts in Binghamton and goes all the way to Albany. It's called Interstate 88. And when they did that, they cut through mountains, they built up hills, made it more gradual, and today you can make really good time going from Binghamton to Albany. Why? Because they made straight paths. But what does that mean for us in our relationships? What it means, friend, is when you live a faithful, righteous life, when you live a godly life, you are setting an example for other people. You don't live isolated from other people. Your family's watching you. Other people are watching you. When you live a faithful, righteous, and godly life, you are making straight paths for others. And then he says, listen, when a runner falls, sometimes we need to help one another. He said, do that so that those that are lame may not be put out of joint. Now, the lame is talking about a person that's crippled and has disability in the legs. They can't walk. And he says that it would not be put out of joint, not dislocated or sprained, that we need to heal one another. We need to come alongside when somebody has fallen on the track and they're bloodied and we need to come alongside and pick them up. Paul says this in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. In other words, do it with humility and meekness. Bear with one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So when Paul says that, restore in a spirit of meekness, that word restore was used for a doctor 
uh, bringing a broken leg back together. And there's times, friends, when people's lives are just out of joint. Maybe because of something that happened to them, maybe because of a trial or suffering that they went through, but they need to be restored. And so as we're, we're seeking to live a righteous, faithful life, we need to also be those who come alongside and we help people be restored. We help people, when a runner falls, we restore them. I've seen this happen on track meets. I've seen this happen in marathons. I've seen this happen in cross country where a runner falls down and you'll have another runner from the same team stop and say, come on, get back up. I can help you. I can help you with this. Maybe you need that today. Maybe you're one of those that's fallen down on the track and you're feeling bruised and bloodied by life. And you need somebody to come alongside you and just say, come on, you can get up. Friends, I just want to say to you, this race is worth running. And maybe somewhere along the way, you've lost hope. You've been so discouraged, you just say, you know, you're not even reading the Bible, you're not even praying, you're not even trying, because somewhere along the way, you just got discouraged. I just want to say to you, friends, the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Christ means there's always hope. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer means there's always hope. And I want to encourage you, if you're on the track today, this day, say, I'm getting back up, and I'm going to get back in the race. I'm going to get back in the race. We need that. When a runner falls, restore one another. And when challenges come, pursue peace and holiness with one another. Look at verse 14. He says, strive for, pursue, run after peace with everyone and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So he's challenging us to pursue, to, to, to run after, to do that. But he has two words that he connects, peace and holiness. And maybe in your minds you don't connect those two words, but I hope when you look at this passage, you're going to see the connection. Peace and holiness. Matter of fact, on the screen, they're going to show the Beatitudes from Matthew's gospel. Matthew gives us Jesus' Sermon on the Mount because he spoke it on this, the Mount of Olives. And it's one of the most complete sermons we have of Jesus anywhere in the Bible. And he starts it off with what's called the Beatitudes. Why the Beatitudes? Because the word blessed is the first word in every sentence. And it means living under God's blessing, living a life that is spiritually benefited and prosperous comes from living this way. Now watch this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Someone translated those who know their need of God. It's talking about humility. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Talks about people who grieve over their sin like David in Psalm 51. For they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, speaking of a horse that can be ridden because of gentleness and, and humility, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not after sin, but after righteousness, for they're going to be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, those who show compassion to others, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, those that are pursuing holiness, for they will get a clear vision of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. And blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as you look at that, just leave it on the screen for a moment. As you look at that, peacemakers are mentioned here. Pursue peace. And there's a whole lot here that, that has to do with this idea of holiness. Mourning over sin. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Being pure in heart. And so those are the people, he says, that are going to live under the blessing of God. 
So as we run together towards Christ, when challenges come, pursue peace and holiness. So peace has to do with harmonious relationships, freedom from disputes. It is we're to run after that. Uh, Paul in Romans 12, verses 18 and 19 says, we're to pursue peace with everyone as much as lies in us. In other words, you can only take care of your part of the relationship. Pursuing peace. Our son has a, a, had a saying when they were raising kids in their home. They're now pretty well grown up. The youngest one is 13. He used to say when there was conflict between the kids, shalom in the home. That's what he would say. Shalom in the home. Say that with me. Shalom in the home. We need to have a little shalom in the home, don't we? So pursue peace. Pursue peace. We'll come back to that in a minute. Then he says, also pursue holiness. Holiness. He says, pursue holiness, which is a life that is set apart to God from sin and idolatry. Simplest definition I can give you. Holiness is a life set apart to God from sin and idolatry. So it's a positive that is set apart to God. The negative is set apart from any idolatry and any sin. He said, pursue holiness. Now, I want you to understand that holiness begins with God because God is holy, and God says, be holy because I am holy, and a holy God wants to have a relationship with you, and that's why the cross was necessary. And when Jesus died on the cross and you put your faith in him, you now can have a position before God that he calls holy, where you positionally are holy. You are set apart. That's why Paul could write to the Corinthian church who really had a mess of problems and say, you're saints, because positionally they were holy. But then he says, we need to progressively be made holy. We need to be walking after God. And so there's a progressive sense of holiness where we're putting off the old man and being renewed in the spirit of our mind and putting on the new man. There's a progressive transformation, that change that is ongoing in our life. And that means that we're continually saying, God, I want to be more set apart to you. I want to find more of my pleasure in you and not as much of my pleasure in sin. And I'm going to run after you. I'm going to pursue holiness. Holiness. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about a person who is harsh and judgmental. I'm not talking about a self-righteous person. I'm talking about a person because of their relationship with God and their knowledge that God is holy. I want to pursue a life that is set apart increasingly to God from sin. Now, I want you to see how these two things go together. He said we need both. We need to pursue peace and we need to pursue holiness. You see, because when we pursue peace without holiness, it doesn't become peacemaking, it becomes peacekeeping. In other words, we don't really deal with the issues. We don't really resolve the conflicts. That's peacekeeping. We're told to be peacemakers, which means we move towards the problems. Friends, I want you to understand this. Those of you that are married, you have two sinners living under the same roof. All of you. I'm a sinner. My wife is a sinner. We're two sinners living under the same roof. So as we pursue peace and holiness, as we're increasingly trying to be set apart to God, we're finding peace with one another as we're on that same track running the same way. And conflicts get resolved. It's not that we don't have conflicts. If somebody says, I don't have any conflict in my marriage, I'm just saying to you, somebody is becoming a volcano or a turtle, I'm not sure which, but you're just keeping a lot of stuff inside. Conflict happens in marriage. A peacemaker says, I'm going to resolve the conflicts biblically with biblical wisdom, biblical truth, 
and I'm going to seek to resolve it in a godly way. That's pursuing peace, friends. Not saying I'm going to just I'm going to avoid all conflict. That's not pursuing peace. But but if we have holiness without peace, that is harsh, judgmental, and critical. But when you pursue peace and holiness together, guess what? You have healthy relationships. Healthy relationships. Pursuing peace, resolving conflict biblically, and pursuing holiness, having a life that's set apart increasingly to God. See, here's one of the, one of the things, friends, though. I think a whole lot of the church, in, the contemporary church today, has no interest in pursuing holiness. We're more interested in how close to the line of sin can I get? And, and friends, I want you to know, if you're not interested in pursuing holiness then you are going to be a frustrated. If you're truly a believer in Jesus Christ and you say, I don't have an interest in pursuing holiness, then you're going to be a very frustrated person. You know why? Because I found out God's not going to change his mind about conforming me to Christ. He's not going to change his mind. He's going to continue to push me in that direction. The Spirit of God's going to convict me. And I want relationships in my life that are saying, Jim, pursue peace, pursue holiness, both of them. Some of you may be looking at stuff on your screens or your computer, and, and that's not pursuing holiness. It's rotting your inner man. Some of you are maybe involved in relationships that aren't helping you pursue holiness, and you need to walk away from some of them. Pursuing holiness has to be an intentional design of cooperating with the Holy Spirit who is trying to conform me increasingly, little by little, to become more like Jesus. But when you're, on, you're running that path, and together we're running towards Christ, you know, that's a wonderful thing in a family. It's a wonderful thing in a friendship. It's a wonderful thing when you have people that are running together towards peace and towards holiness. But then what do we do when a runner gets off the course? Look at verses 15 to 17. Paul says, see to it that no one, and this word see to it, is actually used in the New Testament for the role of an overseer or a pastor or a bishop in the church. It's the same word for overseer. We are to look over one another, to watch out for one another. We are to be vigilant on the lookout to give careful attention to one another. There's a sense in which it's saying accept responsibility for one another. See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And he'll explain what he's talking about. And that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Then he says in verse 16 that no one who becomes a fornicator or sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. So let's unpack this a little bit. He says that we have a responsibility as believers to oversee, to care for one another, not just the pastors, but every believer. That's why we have small groups, so we can care for one another. We can oversee one another. And then he says we need to watch out for two things. Watch out for bitterness. Watch out for bitterness. So what is bitterness? Bitterness is unresolved anger or, or um, unforgiven offenses. When you have unresolved anger in your life, you will ultimately become bitter. When you have people that you're unwilling to forgive, you will become bitter. And bitterness is a horrible thing. Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, we have the, the verse that this is based on. Beware lest anyone, any of you, a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart's turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of the nations, beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous 
and bitter fruit. And notice that bitterness is a root. It's the part that's underground unseen, but it affects everything. Bitterness affects everything. Matter of fact, he says here that bitterness, actually what it does, bitterness is it, it, it troubles you, means that it brings conflict and brings difficulty, and it also um, defiles others. It stains others. Friends, when you have unresolved anger and unforgiven, when you are not willing to forgive someone who sinned against you, you will by default become bitter. Bitterness just happens when anger doesn't get resolved and forgiveness isn't extended. You will automatically default to bitterness. And bitterness is like carrying around acid in the bucket of your heart. And someone else bumps you, what's going to come out is acid. It's sort of like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Doesn't work that way. Bitterness actually troubles you, and it defiles others. That's what it does. Friends, don't allow bitterness. And he says here that bitterness is a grace shortage, not a shortage of grace, but a failure to appropriate the grace of God. You will not go through life without being hurt. You will not go through life without experiencing anger. We all do. We all get hurt. We all experience anger. But if you let that become bitterness, you're failing to appropriate the grace of God in the gospel in your life in that situation. And God's inviting you. Say, don't, don't, don't get bitter. Listen to this in Ephesians 4, 30 to 32. They'll put it on the screen. First of all, it says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Bitterness grieves the Holy Spirit, which means you're going to be miserable and have no power. In verse 31, look at the company that bitterness keeps. Wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. That's a company that bitterness keeps. But what is the antidote to the poison of bitterness? Verse 32. Choosing to be kind towards those who have been unkind. Chooses to be tender-hearted even towards those who are hard-hearted. Choosing to forgive those who don't deserve it. Why? Because God and Christ forgave you. Friends, some of you, I'm sure, in in a gathering like this, some of you are struggling with bitterness. And the biggest thing you could do in your life is say, you know what? I need to release the grip of anger in my life. And I need to forgive those that have hurt me so that I can experience the grace of God in my life. And we are to look over one another. We're to help one another as we run together towards Christ. When we get off course to protect one another. And the second thing he says, we need to be able to then recognize that there's another thing that we need to be careful of and watch over that no one is sexual, immoral, or unholy. Uh, By the way, there is a connection between the two. Bitterness can lead towards immorality. If I had $5 for every couple I've ever counseled where bitterness led towards sexual immorality, I could take several of you out to dinner today. I could. Because bitterness, if it's not resolved, usually will lead to becoming an excuse for sin. And he says, listen, No one being sexually immoral. That's the word fornication. Same word is used in chapter 13 and verse 4 where Paul says this. The marriage bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So all sexual sin of any kind, whether it's pornography or any other sin, where you have a man or a woman involved in sex with somebody that is not their mate, man and woman, not their married partner, it is sin. It's that clear. Hebrews 13, 4. Check it out. Check it out. So he's saying fornication is something we need to be concerned about, or they're unholy. That's describing a person who in, in their, their life is profane, irreligious, loose from moral restraint, not spiritually minded, carnal. 
And then he describes a person who was like that, Esau. Not Seesaw, Esau. Esau was the twin brother of Jacob. Jacob and Esau were twins born to Isaac and Rebekah. And Esau was the firstborn. They were both scoundrels in one way or the other. Let's just face it, they were. But Jacob, there was a part of him that had a heart for God. And Esau, not so much. And so Esau, were described here that Esau sold his birthright for a single meal. Now part of that is because Jacob saw an opportunity and said, you want the stew that I've made? Great, sell me your birthright. What in the world's a birthright? It is the benefit of being the firstborn and a double, a double inheritance. And so Jacob saw an opportunity. He said, Esau, I'll give you some, some stew. Just give me your birthright. And he was willing to do that. Bad deal. And afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing at his father's death, again, Jacob had kind of tricked and supplanted him. When he desired the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent. And so Esau is referred to as a man who was a fornicator and a man who is profaned. Now, let's unpack that for a moment. We don't see anything in the book of Genesis specifically that talks about him being involved in fornication. But what we do see is he married two wives, two Hittite wives. And Abraham had already established a pattern with Isaac that they were not to marry, intermarry with the people that were in that area. So he married not one, but two Hittite wives. By the way, people say, well, why in the Bible do you have people marrying more than one wife? Um, well, friends, it's never encouraged. And in Genesis chapter 2, the idea is one. And I want to tell you, every time somebody marries more than one wife, it is just plain stupid. Abraham, uh, listen, Solomon may have been the wisest man that ever lived, but him having a thousand wives and concubines was really the dumbest thing he ever did. And he writes about it later in Proverbs and says to his son in Proverbs 5, Rejoice with the wife of your youth. In other words, stick with one. I was a dummy. I multiplied wives. Why? It takes a whole lifetime to get to know one person and the intimacy of marriage. And you don't want to be drawn and quartered with a bunch of other ones. Celebrated in the first service, Ron Christian, his dear wife, 50 years of marriage. I'll tell you, you get to know one another over 50 years of marriage. Bert and I are celebrating this summer 49. 49 years. I feel like I'm just getting to know her. So I just want to say, husbands and wives, don't go do the stupid thing with fornication because you're going to ruin the opportunity to have a one-man, one-woman relationship, and it is the best that there is. Amen. It is the best that there is. Don't believe the lie. And, and so Esau, Esau was a guy who lost his blessing and lost the birthright. Why? Because he was profane, he was carnal, he was worldly. And so the Bible is saying, look over one another. Watch out for one another. Help one another not become bitter because of anger and unforgiving spirit. Help one another not become fornicators or become those who are profane. Help one another pursue God. You know, that means we get involved in the messy as a church and in a small group and in our counseling ministry. We get into the trenches with one another. We get muddy and messy as we help one another. And we do it every week here all the time. Why? Because we're running together towards Christ. And we mean business with that. We are running together towards Christ. So, who among us needs to be encouraged today? Right back there to my left 
is a prayer room. And there'll be people there ready to pray with you if you need to be encouraged. Maybe you've already got some relationships, but you've been a little hesitant to make that phone call and say, hey, would you pray with me? Would you walk with me? Would you run with me? Because my hands are hanging down. My knees are weak. Maybe you're somebody that needs to be restored. Your, your, Your feet are on the wrong path. And you need to be restored. And you need to call out to someone and say, hey, I need some help. Been involved this week restoring some people. Love doing it. Getting involved in the messy and helping them. Maybe you need to pursue peace in your relationships because you've been avoiding having the hard conversations that you need to have, but it's not helping anything. And maybe you need to get serious about pursuing holiness because you've been pursuing sin where you ought to be pursuing holiness. Friends, listen. It's when you discover that the greatest pleasure in life is your relationship with God that you will not settle for any other pleasure of sin. When you discover the greatest pleasure in life comes from fellowship with God, you don't want to do anything that breaks that relationship. If if you're finding pleasure in sin, friends, then you're settling for far less than you as an image bearer of God or professing believer ought to have. Pursue holiness. If you're struggling with bitterness, it's time, friends. It's time to lay that down. Release the grip of anger. Forgive those who don't deserve to be forgiven because you were forgiven on the cross. Bitterness will rot your soul. If you're struggling, you've turned from your spiritual birthright and blessing from God because you're pursuing fornication right now. Maybe no one else knows, but you know and God knows. You're pursuing a life that's not centered on godliness. Friends, we want to say to you as a church, come on. Come on, get back in the race. Get back in the race. Life is too short not to be running after Christ. Run together after Jesus. Run together towards Jesus. That's the life that matters. No other life is worth living. Father, thank you. Thank you you have called us together to run this race of faith towards Christ. Now, do you know the needs that are represented here? Those who need encouragement, those who need to be restored, those who need to deal with bitterness, those who need to pursue peace in relationships and, and holiness, those who need to root out bitterness and invite your grace into their lives, and those who need to repent of a fornication or living a, a carnal, ungodly life. God, it's time. It's time. So, Lord, help us to love one another enough to challenge each other to run this race together towards Jesus.